Welcome to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach, a podcast that unpacks international trade and how it affects you without putting you to sleep. Welcome back to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach. I'm Lori Wallach. Today, we have a special guest, Michael Wessel. Michael is the guy I call when I want smart advice on all things China, China trade, China national security, China human rights. Last week, the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission issued a major annual report. Now, Michael happens to have been appointed onto that commission right when it was created. He's one of the original commissioners, and he has run through the arc of the whole China debate I first met Mike when he was general counsel, chief policy advisor, strategist, and trade maven for former House Democratic leader Richard Gephardt. He worked with Congressman Gephardt for more than two decades, and Mike has lived through the entire debate on China trade. Michael also is serving as the chair of the Labor Advisory Committee for Trade Negotiations. That is a committee that is labor union advisors to the trade representative. So welcome very much, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. And uh, we've been colleagues for, I don't know how long now. So uh, great to be with you. Thank you very much. So for folks who haven't been following this debate as long as you and I have, I actually, instead of starting with the report, because it was really had some amazing features in it, I kind of want to take people back to where it was when we were talking a lot about China in the late 1990s, and then into this huge debate over what was called Permanent Normal Trade Relations, PNTR. It's just as background, because China wasn't a market economy, and I would say still isn't. Every year, it needed to get a grant of what was called Most Favored Nation Status, MFN. There was a big vote. Should the terms of trade with China be like the European trade or the Japanese trade? And then came this idea, Let's make it permanent to let China into the WTO. So we're rolling back to 2000, where Michael and I both had a lot less gray hair. What was the debate like back then? What was the dream of what this NPR thing would do? What, you know, your boss was very skeptical of it, your former boss, Mr. Gephardt. What, what was that story? What was the hope? Well, I'd classify this in two ways. One, I think there were people who actually had a dream that, you know, uh, economic engagement uh, would help yield reform, freedom, et cetera. But I put those people in the very small minority. Mostly this was about a fistful of cash. They wanted to end the annual debate about trade uh, relations with China and they wanted to have a clear and free path to invest in China, to outsource supply chains, and do what they could to uh, bargain down and bid away uh, the production and jobs you know, that were here in America. It was based on a faulty assumption that China wanted to be like a country in the West, wanted to be like us, rather than, you know, what is a a communist country led by the CCP interested in building up its own power, suppressing human rights, economic and democratic freedoms, and advancing its own interests to the exclusion of others often. So CCP, folks, is Chinese Communist Party. And I remember that period well. It was a very appealing story. If 
the U.S. made these permanent concessions to give favorable trade status to China, and China got into the WTO, then somehow, like by osmosis, China would start being more democratic and would start protecting human rights, and there'd be religious freedom. Plus, we were promised that this would create a lot of U.S. jobs, that exports would increase to China, but imports from China to the U.S. would not. And now Michael has been on this committee, but also is just sort of a wizard of trade in his own right, has been watching what's happened. So he's a really good person to just give us an overview. How did any of that work out on either the economics or the other issues? Well, look, on economics, people had this perception that all China would send to us was products like toys and textiles. China had no desire to be at the lower end of the production spectrum. And now we have well over a hundred billion dollar trade deficit with China on an annual basis in advanced technology products alone. Uh, that's everything from aerospace equipment to computers to digital goods, etc. It was based on a faulty assumption and thought that China uh, would be in a certain production area and would not grow and would not want to go up the economic ladder. Separately on human rights, uh, political freedoms, abiding by international norms, China has a failed and faulty record over that entire time. They have failed to be an active partner helping on North Korea's militarization and uh, nuclearization. They continue to uh, threaten Taiwan. They've ruined the system in Hong Kong that was built on uh, one country, two systems, and rights are being denied on a constant basis. So everywhere you look, this is essentially a failed enterprise. And the original deal was flawed in its own right. It gave China the ability to have majority ownership of most entities that forced technology transfers. In other areas, they limited U.S. access. The negotiators did it because our companies and others thought that, you know, access to 1.1 billion consumers uh, at that point would be, uh, was the holy grail, but it hasn't turned out that way. I remember a lot of members of Congress who were pro-union, pro-working people saying at the time, these companies are talking about access consumers. What they really want is access to a lot of cheap labor that's repressed. So they can never, people in China can't have an independent union to try and fight for their rights and increase their wages. And I, I'm going to dig into the non-worker issues, but I just want to for a second delve into over the arc of your service as a commissioner, you have watched what's happened with respect to the economic outcomes. And there have been some very famous reports, one of them a series, the China Shock Research, that shows over time up to 5 million U.S. manufacturing jobs lost since the time China entered the WTO can be associated not just with all the economic pain and suffering, but really the hollowing out of whole communities, whole regions of the country. Can you talk to us, and, and Mike has a couple different hats, so he may have to put on now his labor advisory committee hat compared to his commissioner hat, but I'm wondering what you can share with folks to help help our listeners understand practically what's that meant? 
what has those decades of trade under these rules with China meant for working people? Well, you know, there's no doubt that there have been some cheap products that have entered consumer households, but the cost of that has been decimation of many communities, loss of jobs, loss of the opportunity to provide a better future for one's children. Again, we've seen 60,000 factories close. We've seen millions of jobs lost. Not all of that from China, but they have been probably the largest single contributor to that. We've also lost economic security in so many other ways. And the American people know this from the COVID problem, where we didn't have the ability to provide mass PPE the vast majority of the ingredients that go from go into our pharmaceuticals, life-saving and life-sustaining drugs, come from China. Remdesivir, which is a, a therapeutic used for, for COVID treatment, uh, 10 of the 12 active ingredients come from China. Rare earths, um, high-tech goods, uh, we're now importing more military supporting items so that our own military is dependent in other in many areas. We've lost production, we've lost jobs and economic opportunity, but we've also decimated our own economic and national security. And over that period of time, folks, you know, as Mike was describing, the impact has not just been the jobs, but really the whole community. So I just want to reference for folks that China shock research, because it came from a, a very famous economist professor named David Autor, A-U-T-O-R, and you can Google, just Google China shock. There's a really interesting website where you can actually get the papers. And some of the associations that these professors who were supporters of China PNTR and, and supporters of this model of trade, what they found is an association of the places where the most deep China-related, trade-related job losses have occurred are also places that have some of the highest rates of what are called the deaths of despair, the deaths from overdose, from alcoholism, from suicide, that is actually bringing down the overall U.S. average life expectancy, particularly for men. And as well, they found, interestingly, greater political polarization in the counties that of those millions of jobs that were lost to the old model of this existing model of China trade, that the most political polarization were in places where people just had their futures smashed right in front of them. Now, the only good news of this is this was a policy choice and we can make different ones. So I'd like to jump a little bit to having Michael talk to us about the commission. There's a, the commission has reports every year. And again, just so you can Google it, if you want to dig in, it's very interesting. It's not economics or security. It's both. So you can actually get the whole picture. It's the Economic and Security Review Commission, U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. So looking over the arc of time, you just published your annual report. And can you share with us some of the recommendations? Because the you know, commission studies stuff, they, do, they visit U.S. companies that go to China, they interview tons of people, they have hearings, they really get the expertise. And then on the basis of that, and on a bipartisan basis, it's one of the places that is rare in this country. <laughs> there are actually people from across the political spectrum having a civilized conversation based on the facts. They try and make recommendations. So what are your recommendations as the commission right about now? 
Well, let me first highlight your last point, because there are 12 commissioners, each of the four leaders, Pelosi, McConnell, Schumer, and McCarthy, each get three appointments. This year's report, once again, was unanimous. So as you point out, you know, it's not only bipartisan, but I think on the China issue, there is more bipartisan support than probably on most other issues here in Washington. Our number one recommendation this year is looking at, as you point out, the arc of our involvement with China. And 20 20 plus years in, it's pretty clear that China has not abided by the promises and commitments that it made. Earlier this year, the USTR issued a report uh, giving uh, or rating China's performance as poor. That's pretty much what they've done for the last 10 or 15 years. Very few people would say that China is living up to all of its promises or it's living up to our expectations of what might result. After 20 years of essentially a failing grade, do you just keep looking the other way or do you do something about it? Our view is it's time to do a valuation, a hard evaluation, and then rather than kicking the ball down the field, determine whether we should continue this relationship the way it is. We call for suspension of PNTR if the report again gives a failing grade, and that would give uh, Congress the, the ability to determine what the terms of that suspension are. Is it in whole? Is it in part? Is there a way for China to take uh, certain steps to prove themselves? President uh, Trump had a phase one trade deal that had certain metrics. Those weren't achieved. Rather than letting them make the same promises once again, we need to define what the scope of the relationship should be and then a hard and fast evaluation and a real response rather than just another endless dialogue. So you mentioned China's promises and commitments. And again, I know we have some wonky folks who listen to this podcast. There is actually an agreement that the U.S. negotiated the terms of accession for China to the World Trade Organization. And then after that deal got cut, there was this vote to make permanent this favorable trade relationship. And most favored nation just literally means what you get reciprocally. So for instance, you are in certain parts of the WTO agreement and the tariff rates that you're charged are based on the same rates that U.S. charges the Europeans or the Japanese or the Canadians. And so not all of the promises and commitments that were necessarily in that agreement would be the ones anyway I would love. I'd love um, commitments on labor rights, human rights. But the ones that were in there, we definitely can measure up against. And that, that seems to be what the commission is calling for. And as you said, if it's not working out, to not just keep going as is. Do you have a view about what would be a better dynamic? There, I, I know there's sort of a debate. Some folks say, you know, we're never going to get China to change their ways. And that's why it's been great that President, President Biden has been focusing on building up our domestic so part of the answer is we need to do better ourselves. But what do we do with really a lot of subsidies, predatory behavior? You mentioned the word technology transfer, and I want to just translate that for folks. That basically means if you invest in China, you're only allowed in. If you hand over whatever cool innovation that you, the product you want to make, and then down the road, you basically could get booted out because now a Chinese company is going to make the thing you created. So what is the fix? 
the fix is, you know, a series of steps, but most important is stop making excuses. Again, stop covering it up and, and viewing dialogue as the answer. Action is the answer. And China and many other countries respect action, and we haven't taken enough of it. So give you an example, and as you mentioned, I work on the Labor Advisory Committee. The average trade case costs between 3 and $5 million to bring, and it takes fully adjudicated five years for final resolution. And let me just hop in there, folks. When Mike is saying a trade case, what he means is a case about a particular product where under the U.S. law, you can prove that a product's being dumped, i.e. it's being sold to our country at less than the cost of what it really requires to make it. Or you can make a subsidy argument that shows that government money is going into a product. So you can never compete and win. So that's a trade case. And you can do that as a private company or the government can start it. And then the remedy is countervailing tariffs, a charge at the border to try and equalize it out. But the problem is the horse is out of the barn. You're chasing it down the highway and you may not get there in time. So those are the trade cases. Continue. The, the, the other part of that is to win a trade case, you have to show injury. So you will already have had to shed blood, lost jobs, lost production, lost opportunity. And only after those injuries have occurred and uh, you pay the cost to the lawyers to bring the case, can you potentially get some relief? And by that time, you know, you've already lost a lot of capacity, you've already lost a lot of jobs, and you probably will not get back to where you were. So we're ratcheting down opportunity on a regular basis. The government has the authority to self-initiate cases, and it's been used only a handful of times. I don't know why workers have to fight for their own interests when it's their government that negotiates these trade deals. Government should come to their aid and assistance a lot earlier. In other areas, we need to stop doing damage. The uh, Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. We have U.S. companies that are continuing to invest in China in critical supply chains and outsourcing our national and economic and health security interests. The House passed a bill last year that would require notification and review of outbound investment. This was a recommendation of the China Commission last year but it's been blocked by Republicans um, and, and the business community. We need to be in a position to, again, use every tool we have and develop some new ones and ensure that we stop talking about problems and start solving them. So I, I, it sounds to me like they're kind of two tracks, and I will also admit I'm a total nerd, so I read a lot of that report, which is very useful every year. But it seems like they're two tracks. One track is the ways in which particularly the U.S.-China trade and commercial relationship has been toxic, and then that rolls into all kinds of geopolitical problems. We're hollowed out with respect to our ability to make things we need just to be an effective, healthy, successful country, be it medicine, be it certain kind of infrastructure materials, bridge comes down, can we make stuff to actually reconstruct our bridge? All of those issues for sure. Even more scary is what Mike mentioned, which has been a bunch of these reports where the U.S. has gotten over-reliant on China for parts and military equipment. And obviously, you know, it's been a tense relationship the last couple of years between the U.S. and China, so that not, may not be the best idea. So there's all this stuff about our own resilience. And in a way, it didn't matter if it's China or any one country. 
we just can't be that reliant on some other country, particularly one that's not necessarily friendly with respect to all this stuff we need to succeed as a continental sized country. But then there seems there's also this issue more broadly of China's size combined with their predatory trade strategies. When I talk to union friends in Africa, or I talk to small business groups in Latin America, they're feeling pretty squished by China too. And so I'm wondering, you know, what the role of the U.S. being a big, big player in trying to get this fixed would be for the whole rest of the world. First, it's standing up and making clear what the problem is and stop kicking the ball down the field. We're getting some action and some help elsewhere. Some countries, some in the EU and elsewhere are seeing China's policies, the CCP and President Xi's policies, undermine their own success uh, and degrade their economic success, their national security. We need to broaden and deepen that story. We also need to stop China's activities in, as you point out, Latin America and Africa, where they come with presence to corrupt leaders, soccer stadiums, or a lot of other things, and then don't provide any economic benefits for the people. They, in fact, import their own workers to support the projects for rail and, and roads to take to build ports from the mines to the shores so that they can get the minerals and the energy out. Others, as you said, they're being squished. We have to step in and help them be able to fight back, and we have to stand up ourselves. So I guess the last question is, and you may have to defer on this one because you are a commissioner, but I will say that when I got this most recent report, you could have knocked me over with a feather as someone who lived through that really painful debate in 2000, where, you know, it's one of those debates where I bet Michael had the same thought. We are looking at all the things we think are going to happen, and it's all bad. And the other side has this very dreamy-like vision of a different outcome. And, you know, by the end of that, when we lost that vote, I was saying, please, God, let me have been totally wrong, 100% wrong. Because if I am 50% right, we are so screwed, and now here we are. So this report that recommended, as Michael said, there ought to be this detailed review of the outcomes, and if it's not working out, Congress should consider revoking this preferential trade status. Do you have a view, Michael, about how it is we've finally gotten to that place where there seems to be, at least on this commission of very smart, well-informed folks, a bipartisan consensus that we have to try something different as compared to this put on the blinders and sing, I hope it works, that was in 2000. What do you think has caused that shift? I think we're at a point where no reasonable, honest economist or policymaker can say any longer that this is working for us. And we've come to that point. There are 39 recommendations in this year's report. The commissioners each vote on which on their top 10. The recommendation you're talking about is our number one recommendation. It shows unity of purpose across the aisle and across the Capitol Hill. And the fact is we have to decide, we have to admit this isn't working and we have to try something new. We believe it's suspension, uh, a suspension process with, under con congressional terms and a whole host, again, of 38 other recommendations that enhance U.S. national and economic security. We got so much to do, but the damage has been so significant to so many people that we can't wait any longer. Very good insights, folks. Go look at the report. You don't have to read the whole thing, but I bet you'll get sucked into it. The, it's, it's organized in a really smart way. So there's an executive summary, 
and it lays out these recommendations and it's in totally accessible language because I am no economist. And that is the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission. If you want to Google it, we've been privileged to have with us one of the original commissioners, Michael Wessel. He's been on ever since and also generally a trade maven in addition to his service to the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Thank you so much for spending some time with the Rethinking Trade audience, Michael Wessel. Great to be here. Thanks for uh, having me on and thanks for all that you've done over so many years. Thank you. And folks, stay tuned for our next podcast where we're going to be talking more about the EV and other U.S. manufacturing incentives and what this whole brouhaha with Europe really is about and what's the way forward to make sure that, whether it be an issue about China or anyone else, we have some capacity at home to be making some of these goods that are essential for our security, for our health, and for getting through the climate crisis. Thank you all very much for tuning in. It's Lori Wallach from Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach. Until next time.